Greetings, little one. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Bad witch! I'm not a witch, I'm your wife! What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt. What's thou like to live deliciously? Got better. Dost thou comprehend? Welcome to Real Magic, the podcast at the crossroads of real witchcraft and Hollywood magic, where paganism and the supernatural meet their reflections in movies and television, and where we talk about what real magical or life lessons we can learn from fictional witches from 100 years of moving pictures. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. Hey there, witches and weirdos. Welcome to another episode of the Real Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mason, and I hope you are ready to live deliciously because today we are talking about Robert Eggers' 2016 masterpiece, The Witch. Or is it The Vitch? I'm not sure. This intense, dreamy exploration of paranoia and repression is complicated and terrifying. And alongside Anna Taylor-Joy, it stars a pretty badass um, goat... Can goats be bad ass? Is that like mixing my species there? But whatever. That makes it kind of a great uh, co-star to bring in our guest for this podcast, which is Jason Mankey, the author most recently of The Horned God of the Witches. Jason Mankey is a third-degree gardenerian high priest and helps run two witchcraft covens in San Francisco Bay Area with his wife, Ari. Jason is a popular speaker at pagan and witchcraft events across North America and Great Britain. He contributes to Witches and Pagans magazine and writes online for Bathios Pagan at Race the Horns. And he's the perfect person to talk about all the horniness, I guess that's not the right word, of the witch and how it relates to so many interesting things about the horn god, about historical witch trials and witchcraft persecutions and um, actual folk witchcraft. So please enjoy our discussion with Jason Mankey about the witch. Like Philip, I conjure thee to speak to me. Speak as how to speak to Jonas and Mercy. Thou understand my English tongue. Answer me. Welcome, Jason Mankey, to the Real Magic Podcast. I'm very excited to have you here to talk about. Well, I know it's called The Witch, but I can only read the title of the book as the Vivitch. We call it the Vivitch at our house too. Sometimes. Yeah, this the way it's spelled in that. It's the Vivitch. So, but before we talk about the Vivitch, let's um, do a little icebreaker. First off, I'd love to ask people what was your movie or TV show growing up that was like your gateway into magic and paganism or just the the movie that made you feel magical growing up wow that's a really great question because i'm old enough to have lived you know right at the boom of science fiction like star wars was four when i came out so 1977 oh wow that played a big role more so than that though i remember flash gordon the terrible de laurentis flash gordon with the soundtrack Yes. And with Ming the Merciless doing magic and there's a lot of magic and technology kind of mixed together. It's that sci-fi fantasy sort of overlap. And I remember being like horrified by Ming the Merciless as a small child and was worried that he was going to come and get me. So that was a big influence. And now he's horrifying in all sorts of other ways. And there was also the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. There was a cartoon? Yes. So in the early 80s, maybe 83, 84, there was this cartoon uh, based on Dungeons and Dragons. And they were these kids from our world who get transported to the world of Dungeons and Dragons. And they're led by the dungeon master. And they fight this evil force called Venger. 
And it only lasted about two seasons with each season being just 10 or 12 episodes or something. But it was the height of satanic panic, right? Yeah, exactly. I was going to say. Parents got it kicked off television. Yeah, because it was obviously fantasy media. It's a gateway into Satanism. Exactly. Uh, It was just a great show. Amazing show. Uh, Donnie Most from Happy Days was one of the voices. Wow. I think he did Cavalier. And then also Willie Ames who was on Charles in Charge, now has kind of become a right-wing kind of idiot. But he was also one of the voices on that show. Oh, my gosh. Loved loved that cartoon. Awesome. But I'm always interested in the occult and the paranormal. Great, I was reading books on vampires and werewolves and, you know, horror movies, all that stuff. So that's why it's hard to pick that out just one that's why i'm rambling so much oh no but it's great so much of it when i was a little kid and still do that's why like i have the podcast is because like so much you know our witchy and pagan identities are tied into our practices and our lives but they're also tied into like the pop culture we love and most of us seek out certain pop culture because it's kind of witchy kind of pagan and i don't think kind of spooky you know, I also loved cryptozoology when I was a kid. And that, I think, played a role, too. Yeah. Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster. Because, you know, there wasn't probably going to be Frankenstein's monster anytime soon when I was in fourth grade. But there was always the chance that there was a plesiosaur living in the cold waters of Loch Ness. Yeah, exactly. I love that about here in Oregon. And there's all sorts of cryptozoology out here. Bigfoot's big and there's lake monsters and all sorts of stuff. And my daughter is obsessed with Bigfoot. <laughs> You've been going on hunts for him in our backyard. (laughs) (laughs) I did that in Illinois, not quite understanding geography. Oh, well, you know, maybe there's there's something out there. Who knows? (laughs) So you've always been a fan of horror. Are you still a horror fan now? I am, but I will find that I probably watch less of it than I used to. Mostly because I don't like the bloody stuff. I don't like, I don't like gore. That's, yeah, that's my problem too, is I, I like, you know, kind of scary or creepy stuff, like the kind of gothic horror, but I'm not a big fan of gory slasher horror, which is, I guess, it's not as popular now as it was, you know, a decade ago when all the Saw movies were out. It was just all murder and torture, but I'm glad we've, we're kind of in this elevated quote unquote horror renaissance now, which kind of brings us into talking about The Witch. Now, would you consider this a horror movie first off? You know, I mean, I guess there are horrible things in it. I mean, a whole, like most of the family dies. Yeah, I guess it's pretty, pretty horrible that way. Yeah. Yeah. That tends to be what we look for when it comes to horror movies. It's certainly about... Yeah, go ahead. I mean, horror is about making people like scared and uncomfortable, not necessarily being frightening. So it definitely fits into that definition of horror. But it's a weird horror film. I went with some friends who are horror movie fans but not interested really in like witchcraft or anything. Mm-hmm. And we got out and I'm like, whoa, like my face is big and stuff. And I'm all excited. My wife's looking at me, you know, expecting me to start talking about Margaret Murray incessantly or something. And my other friends were like, what did we just watch? You know, they totally didn't understand it or get it at all. So, that you know, for them, maybe it even wasn't a horror movie. Maybe it was just a long 90, sec- 90 minute historical reenactment. Well, so that's what's interesting about this movie is, and that, and you see this in a lot of like historical quote unquote witch movies where the conceit is that what if everything that, you know, women were accused of in the witch trials and women and men were accused of in the witch trials was real. And what if it was really happening? And I think that's an interesting idea, but it's also interesting to me that we haven't seen very many movies where it takes a point of view of, you know, somebody being wrongly accused of all these things, which was in general, what was actually happening to most victims of the witch trials. And so I think that the more, you know, fantastical point of view on these things is interesting and makes for good movies, but it's also comes at the expense of showing some historical reality to the actual human horrors of the witch trials. I guess we get that in things like the crucible, but that's also about communism, not so much about actual people being accused of witchcraft. I get really angry when I see everything connected to Salem all the time on TV. To me, it's such a lazy trope. And none of the people there, except for maybe one person, was really a witch at all, right? I mean, they didn't practice witchcraft. They were innocent people who were innocent victims. And and over again, American Horror Story Coven did it. There was the show Salem on WGN for a while. 
and I don't know, I always like get really mad and yell at the TV when it comes up. Yeah, because Salem is like, it's, it's in many ways an archetypal witch trial because it wasn't about, none of it was about actual witches. It was about fear and paranoia and trying to get your neighbor's land and manipulation and fault flawed legal systems. And it was, you know, a dark period in American history, but it also is a very small, very little thing in American history in the grand scheme of things. And it's very interesting that Salem in our popular culture is the quintessential witch trial when the European witch trials were on scales a thousand times bigger than Salem. And Salem actually happened very late in the history of witch trials, but just the 17th century, a bad time to even be associated with anything witchy. Because <laughs> it really, that was when everything really peaked. I mean, there were witch trials, you know, before and after that, but it was, you know, especially in English speaking world, not good to be a witch in the 17th century or not good to be any sort of different in the 17th century, especially if you weren't a witch, because who knows? <laughs> It is funny though, like, I mean, the Salem trials were what, 1692 yeah. or so? So, I mean, it really is the tail end of everything. And yeah. we hold that up as sort of like the climactic moment. And that was really just sort of the tail end of stuff. Yeah, especially in America, they were very much the end of things. And the reaction to the Salem witch trials really kind of ended witchcraft persecutions in America because it made such, you know, the 17th century equivalent of big headlines and people, you know, who are a bit calmer about things said, no, this isn't okay. Especially the fact and the rather unique aspect of the Salem witch trials was they allowed spectral evidence, which was, you know, the girls were able to testify like, yes, I see the, you know, it's invisible to everyone else, but I see, you know, Goody Proctor is pinching me right now and they allow that in as evidence as a lawyer my other form of training i don't think that's very good evidence and they you know years <laughs> later you know years later Objective. everyone's like that was bad we shouldn't have you know you know at least in some of the european witch trials it's like okay well she's got at least a mark here that's at least a physical thing somebody could see not you know people just pretending though I op- we often talk about them ending though and I don't think they ever end. I just think they transform. Oh, in a definitely. Way. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, just because you're not being pressed to death anymore doesn't mean mm-hmm. that the trials are completely over. I mean, satanic panic. We had people oh, yeah. in jail into the 2000s over those child abuse charges and daycares that were just completely unfounded. And you also had made for TV movies dramatizing these events and saying that they were real uh, throughout the late 80s and early 90s. I had to watch one in high school. Oh my God, you know, really? I grew, up in, I grew up in the South. Okay. So, you know, but we thought those things were real, right? Because you were completely pounded over the head with them growing up in those type of places. Yeah, and now the same mentality that led to the witch trials in Europe and America is now QAnon. And same, it's, it's, it's directly related to the satanic panic too. It's the same stuff. It's cabals of Satanists sacrificing babies. The same story for 2000 years now, really. Mm-hmm. And so that even takes us back to the witch because it, you know, revolves around the loss of the disappearance of a baby and eventual baby sacrifice. There's some baby sacrifice in there, right? Right. Not, doesn't end well for the baby. You know, I mean, that was one of the things that witches were thought to have done was sacrifice, mm-hmm. the big one. And the baby sacrifice was how you got your powers as a witch, right? Yeah. If you were going to have a flying ointment, you needed the fat of a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you one, know, of, th- th- one of the things I always liked about the witch, though, was that if you interpreted it in certain ways, maybe it wasn't supernatural and that it's all going on in someone's head. Yeah. I think you can look at a lot of fantasy and genre films that way and horror films there always is a question of like what is real what's in people's head because it's sort of the Alice in Wonderland Wizard of Oz idea of this is an internal journey to some sort of catharsis or enlightenment it's not literal and you see that like I said in the Wizard of Oz where oh it was all a dream it was all this metaphorical journey for her same with you know, Alice in Wonderland. And you kind of see that even like Labyrinth, which is another one from the eighties that like defines so much of us as witches. It's like, was what happened to Sarah in Labyrinth, quote unquote, real? Because, or was it all in her imagination? And even so it doesn't matter if it was all in her imagination because it still mattered to her emotionally. 
one of the things about witchcraft that I think is important is whether or not it's literally true, if you believe it's true to you, then it kind of happens in a way. You know, we're we're like old fashioned, we want to be initiated witches. So, you know, we did we have we've been initiated into a tradition or whatever. And my wife was initiated first. And so she got to watch me be initiated. And then a few years later, we're initiating our first people. We get the same ritual in front of us. And I look at it and I go, this isn't the script that was used for us. And she's mm-hmm. like, yes, it is. I saw it. I watched it. And I was like, no, this is completely different. Because in my brain, it was a completely different experience for whatever reason. And while she's technically correct, I also like to think that I'm kind of right just because I remember it a certain way. So it's real to me. I mean, obviously can't use that in a court of law. But no, yeah, that's, you know, I can't like spectral evidence. <laughs> right. But, but, yeah. but there's something when you have that experience and it's real to you and it resonates within you, you know, and it helps shape you, then it's real. Absolutely. And so like our main character, um, Thomasin, Anna Taylor-Joy, who, you know, she's done pretty good for herself as an actress. Is, yeah. And she's fantastic in this role. I mean, you understand watching this, like, oh, she's going to be huge. She, is This could very much be an internal metaphorical journey for her, just finding her own power. Or it could be that it's all real. That's the beauty of movies is you get to decide as the viewer. Well, poor Thomason at the beginning, you know, when she's taken away from the city, like, you know, big city life, right? With the carts and everything. And it looks terrible compared to what we're used to, but it's better than what she moves into. Yeah. And then before that, been taken away from England where they had glass windows. And she mentions yeah. that in the film. And, you know, she has to try to do something in her mind to rationalize this situation that she's in because it's so horrible. And every step in her life, it seems to get more and more horrible. Like you would try to find a way out of that as much as you could, whether it was selling your soul or escaping into some sort of fantasy land where there's actually butter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that the line, you know, would you like the taste of butter? It's, you know, it's so simple, but this movie, it really kind of the way it starts, it sort of marries several horror movie tropes. It's like the family moves into a new place where everything's kind of different and creepy, but it's also a cabin in the woods story. It's they're isolated from society and you kind of, it's also like The Shining where this family is isolated and starts to maybe go a little bit crazy from that isolation. It's so many things combined into one. It also has that, you know, this is the safe place and then don't go into this place, which is the woods, yeah. right? Woods yeah, never go in the are woods. where any sort of control just goes away. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea of like the woods as it's always a metaphor for so much things in horror because it is the unknown. It's the uncontrollable. It's where society and civilization don't matter anymore. And it's a perfect example of like your subconscious and the unknown but it's also an example of the divine like we as witches will find the divine in the woods in nature and that can be scary and enticing a lot of people don't like those in between places because you go to the woods during the day and it can be dark in the woods and some of us really love that oh yeah and it's exciting to go into that And then other people will look at that as something to be fearful of uh, because they can't control how bright it is or what's going on. I'm sure the Puritans thought that way. And I mean, but also you look at like the Puritan era, like the the woods, I mean, for us, the woods are still actually dangerous. You still can get hurt, but it was far more dangerous back in the day. Like it was a matter of life and death if you got lost in the woods. They didn't have, you know, search and rescue as well as we do. (laughs) It was scary. There was no GPS. Yeah, there's no GPS. I just always think back to, you know, we take for granted just how much light we have in our modern world right now. And we don't think about how dark night would have been even, you know, 150 years ago when we didn't have electric lights. Like, I just can't, if you've ever been camping with no moon, it's dark. And that was the norm. And like, so of course the night was scary back then. I, I go out and I love to seek that darkness, you know, because you, you know, I live in a big urban area, you know, yeah. so Valley where it, there's almost no escaping the light pollution. So to go somewhere else, even like a smaller town where you can see more than 20 stars is a big deal. But I don't, I don't think a lot of people realize just how dark it is and like how mysterious the sky looks when you can see the Milky Way and all. Oh, yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I don't think even we also don't understand how bright the moon is 
when there's no light pollution, I go camping down this lake near Lake Tahoe. And when the moon comes out in the middle of the night, it's like somebody's shining a floodlight on you. I mean, there's, you know, you forget that the that you can cast shadows by the light of the moon too. And it's so, that's magical and compelling as well. Well, I think a lot of the joy of witchcraft is being able to connect yourself to those things that we have trouble connecting to in the modern yeah. world. And if you've, if you read the history of modern witchcraft, I think one of the big sort of like, I don't know if it's like a thesis statement or a contention or something, but one of the ideas is that people are disconnected from the modern world and witchcraft provides that entryway back in to the natural spaces of the world. And a lot of religions don't do that. I mean, Jesus is a God of the forest just doesn't usually seem to work very well. No, but he, he wouldn't hang out in the art. desert. Yeah. But you can have Artemis running through the woods. Yeah, exactly. And running through the woods. And those are things that you can connect with in order to reconnect with what we've lost or never had in a lot of cases. Yeah. Or things that like our society just doesn't prioritize, which is, you know, comes into this movie as well, because you're connecting to things that society has told you aren't important or are even wrong. And when our society doesn't prioritize spirituality or doesn't prioritize connection with nature, just connecting with those things is subversive and can be scary to people. And then thus they think, oh, you're doing something evil and you need to be burned at the stake. Well, to me, the scariest part of the witch, you know, isn't selling your soul. This isn't flying witches at the end of the film. It's the crazy religion of the mother and father yeah right i mean it's like yeah spirituality is great but it can also be taken to this complete extreme to be kicked out of a puritan settlement to be too they were too much for the puritans like that's that's so interesting the historical view of like witches and witchcraft this idea of how powerful the devil is in these ideas of witchcraft during the witch trials it almost seems to like undermine like, well, how is the devil getting away with so much if, you know, God is so powerful? (laughs) It's a very strange psychology. You know, so I wrote a book about horn gods. Yeah. We're going to talk, let's talk about that. And uh, one of the big things in the, in that book, in that story of the horn God is having to deal with ideas about the devil. And you're absolutely right for an all powerful God to be subservient to this figure is something that you see all the time. Like there is, for whatever reason, you know, the devil has control over this world, right? And if you were God and you had all this power, why would you let him run around and run amok in such a way? Why would he have this much power over people? And, you know, obviously it was done as an excuse. You have the devil as an excuse for anything that goes on in your society, but they never make the excuses to why their God is so powerless in the face of this adversary. Yeah. The, the God, you know, allows all these so-called witches to exist and isn't really striking them down. It's relying on flawed humans to do his work. And sometimes they screw it up. And most of the times they screw it up. Or why isn't repenting good enough, right? Why yeah. does it have to be burned to death or, that kind of goes against the whole plate. thing Jesus did with the whole dying and the stuff and the cleansing humanity of sins. Like what was going on there? Yeah. You know, let he without sin cast the first stone and stuff, right? I mean, there, there's nothing biblical about what was being done. And for the reaction to always have to be that strong, right? There's no other cure for this other than your death. It, I don't know. I don't like to be mean to Christianity. I mean, I, you know, I have friends who are Christian and stuff, but wow, your deity's pretty weak here. Yeah. Right. No. I mean, like they, they seem to have no recourse. Well, yeah, the witch trials were a result of a kind of extremism and any religion can be beautiful and supportive and create community and connection with the divine, but it could also go into extremism and that's not confined to just Christianity. But any kind of extremism where you're trying to use religion as a cudgel or as a weapon against people, that's not what the gods want, I'm pretty sure. One of the things that really surprises me about people in that day and era, you know, and a lot of them, I'm sure, were pretty devout Christians, was just how much fear they had of the devil. 
Like they really thought that this figure was like outside the door trying to influence their lives, that it was really, that there were a group of people who were so interested in causing torment to others that they would make a cow's milk go sour. You know, if I had all these powers, there were things that I would do other than that, you know, petty, petty little vandalism and crimes, but going to sleep at night with that fear of the devil possibly being around with that fear that someone in your house uh, could fall into his clutches or something. I don't think that's a fear that we live with very much anymore. And, you know, I mean, people are scared of lots of things. They're scared of crime. Um, You know, they're scared of liberals, you know, making us communists and socialists or whatever. Uh, But to have that fear of, satan like constantly being after and stealing your soul you know that kind of fear is pretty novel today because we just we don't have those kind of worries yeah i do think that people do like it's a human instinct to find something out there to blame for when things go wrong and to kind of to kind of skirt responsibility and accountability saying oh well the devil made me do it it's kind of interesting if you go to England and you look and not just England, but the rest of the British Isles, especially areas of Wales, Scotland and England. And you see like where the witch trials were more centrally located, like, you know, where these areas were, where people were being executed. If the area did not have a strong belief in fairies, it was more likely that there would be witch trials. But if there was a strong belief in fairies, less likely yeah, because the fairies were something to blame, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, the fairies were the ones, you know, poisoning the milk or stealing the children. It wasn't the witches. And in uh, Eastern countries, in the Middle East, it's the djinn. Right. It's always something. And the, I very much believe that some of these, you know, the fae are real, but they're not responsible for everything they get blamed for. Because we can never yeah. know. But uh, believing in some more sort of supernatural figure though in some ways is probably more healthy because then it's not your neighbors that you're blaming yeah right yeah once once the blame was transferred to human beings then you Mm -hmm. run into all the problems you know if it's just the fate you can just leave something outside as a gift or light a bonfire and they'll go away yeah get some horseshoes and iron and then you're good and it's interesting if you look at like some you know the superstitions about fairies or about witches there's there's like you said there is so much overlap of the things they're responsible for and the things that turn them away and all these mythologies have gotten and where different religions get so entwined and feed into each other it's just such an interesting evolution as it goes on and on over time i mean christians were accused of some of this stuff pretty early on oh yeah yeah i mean it, it goes back so far and whoever comes into power likes to recycle all of these myths and then direct them at the, the group that they've decided to label other. Mm-hmm. We can kind of use that as a transition to talk about your book, The Horned God of the Witches, which just came out this, like last month, right? Or this month? Uh, it- yeah, it came out in June, like the first week of June. Yeah, and now it it, feels it's longer July. And shorter. <laughs> I'm like, what is time? It's a J month, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But that, you know, the idea of a, I guess, I don't know if syncretism is the right word, but a a figure that kind of shows up in different faiths in different forms. And that kind of idea of, you know, the horned god being, it's not the same as the devil, but being related. Can you talk about how those things relate and how it can relate to, you know, Black Peter, our favorite character? (laughs) Well, you know, when I think of the horned god, I think of an earthly figure, an earthy figure. Right. Mm-hmm. This is a, a figure of pleasure to some degree. The horned god's often associated with sex, but doesn't necessarily have to be sex. It could just be enjoying the physical body. Yeah. Or living deliciously. Man. Yes. <laughs> or inebriating the physical body, yeah. which is something some people enjoy doing. But it, you know, it's also a god of wild spaces, a god mm-hmm. of the earth. When you think of the witch, this is the god that lives in those woods, right? Yeah. The wild spaces, the liminal spaces between things uh and when it comes to sort of the horn god and sort of the bigger idea of the devil when we look at the ideas of the devil this was somebody who was cast out from paradise from heaven and he fell to the earth which, yep. which to me is very horned goddish 
that he ended up living on the earth and living on this planet instead of living high above and lording over other people. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a lot of parallels with the horn god of the witches. Also, if you read a lot of the stories about kind of how the idea of Satan developed, this is in a non-canonical Christian book written by some Jewish groups called uh, the Book of the Watchers. There's a bit of it that we usually call Enoch today, but it's a story of these, these figures who were continually cast out from heaven, who led sort of a rebellion. And the things that they do when they get here to earth though, are teach people things. They mm -hmm. teach people magic. They teach people to forge. Oddly, they teach cosmetics, which some people were really upset by, you know, wouldn't want any <laughs> eyeliner on you. Oh, no. you know? But what they do is generally positive, right? They're, they're helping people instead of keeping them in, you know, the keeping them from knowledge, keeping them from wisdom. And yeah. so the, the horn god, well, I wouldn't think of him as like a wisdom god. This is a god that wants us to be smart, wants us to take advantage of our environment, at least in a way that's not going to destroy the environment. So there's a lot of sort of parallels and overlaps with the figure that probably is mostly known today as Lucifer, but there are other names, Azazel and some, some others, because the name constantly changes depending on which group wrote down the story, and they kind of all got smushed together later. But I love that, the, a god of this world who wants to live here with us, who enjoys physical things. I mean, some of these stories are about the fallen ones wanted to have sex and, you know, with human women and have babies and stuff, you know, and to me that puritanical God would never have sex. God looks down upon sex is really, really unhealthy. And, and one of the reasons for a lot of the sexual repression in our society today. Yeah. Cause like you get pretty much the garden of Eden story is like, here's the things that are bad that God doesn't want you to experience is knowledge and there's all sorts of stuff about sex and sexuality and gender in there. Those are evil things too. It's like, but those are cool, man. Yeah. Well, like, yeah like why, like, why do you not want people to have knowledge? Sorry, I'm kind of arguing with the entire Bible here, so I don't need to do that. But it is such a strange thing where like knowledge itself is viewed as the evil it, thing. Even in the ancient world, a lot of people saw right through that. I mean, there were a lot of Gnostic groups who thought mm -hmm. that the serpent was the good person in the garden of Eden because the serpent was offering knowledge and it was God who was the bad guy for letting people live in ignorance. Of course that got shut down and those texts were all pretty much burned until somebody found them in the 1940s in Egypt. But you know, that there were people even early on who recognized how unhealthy that was and yeah. how backwards the story really was, you know, yeah. I've eaten a bunch of apples. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love apples. Yeah. The Macintosh gives you this. Golden Delicious gives you this. You uh, know, yeah. Granny Smith gives you this knowledge, you know, yeah. you know. Red Delicious gives you nothing because it's a shit apple. Exactly. Disgusting and gross. Like it's just, it's such a marketing ploy because it looks pretty, but it tastes like mealy nothingness. Sorry, this has been my apple rant tangent. To kind of bring it back to like the witch, how do you think, you know, we could, let's talk about how the devil turned into a goat. Cause that's such an interesting bit of history because I mean, that's not there. You know, there's no physical descriptions of the devil in the Bible. I don't believe. Not really. But if you, if you think about what the figure would have been, I mean, Lucifer, which is mm -hmm. really, really, that whole story is really taken out of context. But if, if you think of Lucifer as the devil, then he would have been pretty, right? He's an angel. Exactly. He was, yeah. yeah. Certainly wouldn't have been a bad looking guy. Or, you know, it would have been pretty sharp looking. But over the centuries, people wanted to contrast. So if people in heaven are beautiful, and this is one of the reasons if you look at woodcuts from the era of the witch trials, usually you'll see the, the devil figures always in black. Like mm -hmm. he's always jet black. And then the other figures are usually in white because it was believed that the angels were all in white because they were good. And so that the, and then they had to be pretty because they were angels and were good. And then the devil figures needed to be black because that's the opposite of white and that they should be ugly because the angels in heaven are pretty. So they always had to be sort of the opposite. 
But when you look, when you read stories of the witch trials, though, the appearance then it changes because when people are drawing them, they make them grotesque. But when people were describing who this devil figure was during the witch trials, it was most likely to be someone who was dapper and handsome. Mm-hmm. And often this person was described as a black man. And I'm not sure that's always about the color of the man's skin, but it's about what he wore. He wore like a black yeah. outfit with a black hat. And he looked really great. The physical descriptions from people accused of witchcraft were always sort of the uh, antithesis of how the devils were drawn. You know, mm-hmm. There was like a disconnect there for whatever reason. Yeah. So to kind of like another tangent, like in Salem, again, which was sort of an anomaly in terms of witch trials, there was definite both anti-Indigenous and anti-Black racism in the way that Absolutely. the devil was described in Salem. Because like, one of the first witches accused was Tituba, who was a slave, and her husband was also an enslaved man and accused of being the devil or being an agent for the devil. And they also were living with a lot of fear of indigenous people who were, you know, in ongoing wars with the colonists. Pretty justified, let's be honest. But there was definitely racism in some of the descriptions of the devil in Salem. But that was unique as much racism as to America. <laughs> We don't want to talk about America's failings, though. How do yeah. You know? Oh, no. Right. But when you ask about the goat, though, when people were thinking, like, how could Satan, you know, disguise himself and be here with us? The answer was, well, it should be a domestic animal of some sort. And so while we think of goats today, goats in many places were not the predominant form of Satan. It was usually more likely to be a dog or a cat. Mm-hmm. It had to be something that was around. But I think goats especially capture the imagination because goats are domesticated, but they're not domesticated. They're still assholes. They're They're jerks. Yeah. They're very. I I love goats, but they're definitely assholes. Yeah. I mean, more so than a cat, right? Yeah. Well, even, you know, that's saying a lot. And I love cats. But yeah. So a goat kind of is a liminal creature because it's domesticated, but not domesticated at the same Mm -hmm. time. So if you were going to pick an animal to be the devil, I think the goat really resonates because we can't control goats as much as we would like to control goats. And we have that association with horned deities throughout history and like satyrs and pan and other. Right. And then you have, this would go way off the rails, but there's a pretty important goat in the Zodiac too, I say as a Capricorn, you know, it's just a goat with a fishtail. I love that uh, there's those correspondences between tarot cards and the Zodiac and Capricorn. It's just the devil. It's Oops. like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I'm a Capricorn too. I'm yeah. You know, like, very, very used to all the devil stuff being thrown my way. And yeah, yeah, I wear it as a badge of honor more and more. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, the Scorpios like to think they're the scary ones, but Capricorns are really like we're the final boss of the Zodiac, really. And Elvis was a Capricorn. Enough said. Yeah. yeah. I love being a Capricorn. So fun always being right. Yeah, the goats have that historic association with, you know, magic. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, though, about images in the witch trials, though, is they were very often not very pan-like at all. No. And again, it's sort of one of those things, we think of it today, that they must have all looked like pan, but sometimes I think they look more reptilian than mammalian, really. I mean, they're kind of scaly sometimes, bat wings, you know, but yeah. they always do have horns. And there just aren't a whole lot of domesticated animals with horns. Yeah, not right? really. The goat, the goat is the one that you keep coming back to over and over again. And, you know, it's stubborn nature just makes it more likely that this is probably the devil in disguise in the farmyard because I can't get it to do what I want it to do. Can't do and like, the, as you say, if it's one of the few domesticated animals with horns, that makes it particularly dangerous. Like, you know, you get you can get hurt by a goat, you know. That's one of the things about Black Philip in the movie is Black Philip is really strong, right? And he kills the father mm-hmm. by hitting him with his horns pretty much full on and causing bodily injuries. You know, goats could be dangerous. We have this idea, you know, today we think of goats and we look at them and like, oh, look how cute it is, you know, and, and cuddly. But not all of goats are cute and cuddly. They're, they can be, like I said, goats can be mean. <laughs> I'm sure they had some real goats on set for this, but I'm sure it was a hell to try and, you know, direct a goat for your movie. I'm sure all those goats were real. They didn't have a, much of a budget for that film. No, it's a, it's a great piece of filmmaking, I think, because it's all, 
like the kind of horror I like, it is very much psychological. It's what you don't see. There's not a lot of big showy special effects. It's just about the things they do show are used to such great effect in this movie. And it's all about the building of tension and paranoia as the movie moves forward. There's a sense of foreboding over the whole film. Yeah. And it, every every scene just sort of builds on that unease and it just gets bigger and bigger until it explodes at the yeah. end. What canst thou give? What's the like the taste of butter? A pretty dress. What's thou like to live deliciously? Yes. What's thou like to see the world? What will you from me? One of the things I love most about that film is they went back and used dialogue that was in diaries, letters, and the witch yeah. trials to make it as accurate as possible. So I don't know if everybody listening to this knows who Margaret Murray was. And I think I've said her name a few times, but yeah. Margaret Murray was this a, like trailblazing Egyptologist in the early 20th century. She lived until the 1960s. She was like, she lived until she was 100. Fascinating person. Oh, yeah, very. Love Margaret Murray so much. But on the side, she wrote about witchcraft. And two of those books have had a huge impact on what modern witches do. The first was 1921's Witch Cult in Western Europe. And the second one was The Horned God of the Witches in 1931. And Margaret Murray says that witchcraft existed in opposition to Christianity and it was organized. And that the principal deity of this cult was a horned god figure that had has great antiquity attached to it, but it had been corrupted over the centuries because of the influence of Christianity. And I love that book. And if you really want to just get to the essence of what that book kind of talks about, all you have to do is watch The Witch. It's mm -hmm. The Witch Cult in Western Europe brought to life. When I left the theater after seeing it, that was what excited me the most. That It was like watching Margaret Murray's book on screen because all of the things that she talks about which is doing are really a part of that film for the most part in some way. And to use the actual words that people use to describe witches and what witches did was just a real stroke of genius and brilliance. And those Margaret Murray's books are kind of hard to read sometimes. So being able to just distill it down into 90 minutes is really fantastic. Yeah, and it, like, the, I mean, Margaret Murray's generally, my impression is that her research has pretty much been like, refuted or not most not many people think there's a lot of like historical accuracy in her research what is your take takeaway on that oh there's not very much at all yeah not at all it's, it's a cool idea <laughs> however you know she sparked imaginations with what she was exactly doing. yeah gerald and gardner she, was hugely influenced by her oh yeah gerald gardner's 1954 book has a foreword by margaret murray she yeah. blessed yeah. witchcraft modern witchcraft from the very beginning and there's some evidence that she practiced magic herself and believed that perhaps there was some sort of survival from her witch cult. There's a story like when she was, I think it was, she was in her eighties. She went undercover to a resort community looking into like murders of people that she thought were cult inspired. You know? That Where's that movie? I want to watch a movie about 80 year old Margaret Murray trying to solve cult murders. Like that so do be... I. So do I. Come you know, on, Hollywood, get on it. You know, Angela Lansbury is still here. You know, we, we, we can happen. Yeah, mur yeah, murder she conjured or something. It'd be great. You know, so while Murray's idea that there was an organized witch cult, I think is something that is easily discounted. You know, secret organizations don't last very long yeah. without somebody spilling the beans, especially one that she says goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years. You know, mm -hmm. we would have some sort of an idea. Uh, but, you know, she documents things from witch trials. And if you want to know what people thought witches did, her books are still really good for that. You know, I mean, her witches initiated people, danced, 
uh, ate a lot of food, practiced magic, and sacrificed babies. Those were all things that they thought witches did. And yeah. four out of five ain't bad. Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to go with like, all those are great, except for the sacrificing babies. I'm just like, nah, no, but, but like dancing, eating food, doing one some magic. Other, yeah, one <laughs> sounds like a good thing, time, man. Yeah. One of the other things about Murray, though, is she kind of brings up an alternative to sacrifice in a way. And this comes in, this shows up a lot more often in her later books. But she believed that, there needed to be a sacrifice every so many decades for the good of the land. Oh, and so very very midsummer, yeah. Yes. And she put together a timeline in England, like where a, a, someone from the royal family had to die to keep the land fertile in the mm-hmm. UK. And sometimes the king didn't want to do it. So he would assassinate like the Archbishop of Canterbury, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but from such ideas, I think in modern witchcraft, we really get the sort of the idea of the dying and resurrecting God. So we go and have fall celebrations and people talk about the God of the earth dying so that the crops can, can rise and that the earth can be fertile. I think in some ways, even that is connected to some of the things that Margaret Murray read. Certainly James Frazier and the golden bow kind of articulated it too. And earlier than Margaret Murray did, but uh, Murray I don't know. She just captures imaginations a little bit better and puts a spin on things. Yeah. And the thing with like, you know, there's not a lot of evidence of like organized secret things, but when you think of like witchcraft and these practices and folk magic, the whole point is it's not organized. It is hyper-local, hyper-personal, natural. It's passed through oral traditions. It's like the exact opposite of the church. It's, you know, there are women participating actively in it. And so it's the kind of thing that wouldn't have been documented at all. And you also look at folk practices and folklore and, you know, just traditions, seasonal traditions. There's so much that's so super pagan about so many seasonal folklore traditions. Like, you know, not to be kind of, you know, pedantic or uh, hackneyed, but like everything about Christmas is pagan. Oh, yeah. That's and you see in there all these pagan traditions and pagan ideals about the cycle of the year and the re- resurrection and life and light and all these things that are so completely separate from Christianity. But they're in there and those same practices would have absorbed ideas about the devil, about God and who knows what was going on in a small village 500 years ago, but it's, you know, it's, there was definitely much more, there wasn't, the church wasn't everything. There was always something else underneath there surviving. Well, when you've lost so much information and you've taken away all the alternatives, right? The only alternative you have is the devil. Yeah. And, you know, when you live a life of not having pretty dresses, not having butter, not being able to travel the world anymore, Maybe that's where you go. Maybe the, you know, for some only game in town, man. (laughs) Yeah. You know, for some people, maybe it is really where they went. Also, I think we ignore often, especially historians, they they ignore the tenacity of magic and people's belief in magical practices. You know, there are things that people use today, spells and charms that are really 2000 years old that have been passed down over generations again and again. Now, a lot of these things don't have a religious component to them. I'm not arguing that these things necessarily should be labeled witchcraft because, I mean, the people who did some of these things would not have identified as witches. Mm-hmm. Christians have used magic too. But, you know, anything that the church can't control or the government can't control is often viewed with suspicion. And magic's one of those things that they can't control. Therefore, it's something to be viewed with suspicion. And therefore, it's also something that you want to take out of the hands of people. It's interesting. There's, you know, Christianity is ostensibly a monotheistic religion, but it's sort of as we talked about before, like it really isn't because there's another deity there. It's just the devil. Because he's, you know, he's, you can't have a single deity of everything and then say that deity does no evil. So you have to have the devil there. And so it no longer becomes monotheistic. And I think, you know, a lot of, the extremism becomes where there's the focus goes off the God and onto the devil. People are much more worried about the devil than they are about God. And that's where things go off the rails sometimes, as we see. Christianity seems to have always had a problem with monotheism. Like it just is very slow to embrace that idea. 
before yeah. the Protestant Reformation. Oh, you know, Catholics, pagans, it's, a, yeah. it's a pantheon of saints. <laughs> right. You know, one of the reasons that pagans were able to take to Christianity was because they simply replaced pagan deities with Catholic saints. Yeah, that's and what like, Bridget, you know, especially is most the most well-known example of that. It's like, oh, look, oh, we'll just call her a saint. Exact yeah. same story. Yeah, and everything goes on. And even if, you know, the parallels aren't always there, you can always find a saint who will do whatever it is that you need for them to do, right? Uh, you know, religion is about usefulness. And the saints provided a usefulness for a very, very long time for a lot of people, mostly because I don't think most people really like monotheism, which is why every, it seems like in so many monotheistic faiths, they're always looking to give more power to another figure, whether that's a saint or whether that's the devil. Yeah, or angels or other things. But, you know, it's like if you have a problem, you don't want to ask the president. You maybe want to ask your local representative. Right. Would be, would be, that's why you'd call the saint and not the president, because he may be busy. Yes. So. Maybe the first lady is easier to talk to. Yeah, yeah, a bit, 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 bit nicer. And, you know, I guess in this metaphor that makes like the, you know, candidate of the opposition party, the devil. So do you have favorite moments in the witch, the witch that we haven't talked about? I mean, we've talked about how they use that dialogue, just beautiful filmmaking. My favorite one in terms of like the dialogue they use is the one with her brother where he starts like spouting scripture and then dies. Because that's something yeah. that's very much taken from the actual accounts. You know, I mean, for me, the, the climax and the best part is when Black Philip has assumed human form, right? And he's asking mm -hmm. questions. Because to me, I'd love that because to me, it would just, it just looks like I would have expected something like that to have looked yeah. if those kind of things were actually happening, you know? Um, so to me, that'll always be the best part. But the twins, I find completely creepy the whole way through. I find the, the twins much scarier than Black Philip ever was, you know, and they're doing their rhymes about Black Philip and whispering amongst themselves, and they're creepy little kids. Yeah, kids, you know, I love creepy kids in horror because, like, you don't, I don't know if you have kids, but like when you do, when your kid says, Oh, yes, my friend is standing in the hallway, like, what? Yeah. Kids can be very scary. Especially when they walk into your room at night and just stare at you. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's why we've never had kids. You know, I mean, cats will probably do that to you too. But they'll cats will jump on you though. I yeah, don't know. I always wonder what corner of reality your pets are looking into. Like when your dog kind of looks behind you and just starts growling, which has just happened to me a few days ago. I'm like, oh great, there's something. What's my dog saying? What's going on? I think the film also really touches on the isolation all those people went through. You know, yeah. when, a, when the brother, you know, a brother is staring at his sister's chest because mm -hmm. that's, that's it. That's all there is. Right. And it, I think it, you know, it talk it speaks to how far removed they are from the society and how far removed they are from any sort of positive sexual expression or understanding. Yeah. And when you think about like these people, this family was basically a small cult, you know, they were. They were using the same methods of control as the cult does, you know, isolation and indoctrination. And she's, you know, trying to get out and it goes ter again, it goes terribly for everyone except for her. It was always going to go terribly. For yeah. Them. Like it was like, it's never going to end well for this family. Yeah. Given their location, uh, the parents the you know, the father is a perpetual liar the whole way through and mm -hmm. kind of like leaves his daughter out there to be accused by the mother. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of bad things going on in that family. Yeah, what's the name of the actor? I'm looking up the actress who played the mother because she was great. Was I think. Yeah, she was. She was a uh, Catelyn Stark's sister in Game of Thrones. Robin Aaron's Ka mother. Yeah, I think it's Kate Dickey is her name. Yeah, they're all reuniting for another film. Most of oh. the cast of the Witch. Oh, really? Yeah, another Eggers film. Awesome. No, I not. No, I think I got the name of the like a wife wrong. like a Scandinavian take on the witch. Great, one of my favorite actors in this movie, also who's a very small part, but uh, the he's, the governor is played by Julian Rishings, who played Death on Supernatural. He's just one of the best faces on television or movies. He's just this very kind of scary looking guy, and he's one of the nicest people if you've ever met him. But he's he's just 
one of the uh, normal people and kind of when death himself in my eyes, you know, says, no, you guys are too weird for me. Go away. That's a bad sign for the rest of the movie. Dang a lot, isn't it? So we're about at the end of the time. So you've got the Horn of God of the Witches out. Just came out June. What other books have you got out? Where else can we find you online? How else can we support your work? What else is out there? I know you're involved. Or are you still involved in Pathios or have you moved on from there? I'm free. You're free. I, I couldn't take couldn't take the burdens anymore of Pathos. It's a big job. And it's like, you know, I don't like, to, I mean, I set myself up for things, but, you know, a lot of people in the pagan community have very strong feelings about that site. And I was a, a lightning rod for those thoughts, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but I'm very sensitive. And at my age, I don't need any more gray hair. So I had to retire. But uh, the Horn God book is my seventh book. So I've been writing for quite a while. There's the Witch's Altar with Laura Tempest-Zakroff, the Witch's Athame, the Witch's Book of Shadows. Then I decided I should probably stop writing tool books because I didn't want to be called tool boy the rest of my life. You'd also run out of things eventually like the Witch's Food Processor. I mean, who knows? Yes, it's true. Uh, There's the Witch's Wheel of the Year, which is about all the Sabbaths, transformative witchcraft, which is about some rites in witchcraft that are often overlooked and then there's horn god and then in march the witch's book of spellcraft which is my obligatory i have to write a spell kind of book i think i think it's part of being an author in the witchcraft genre (laughs) you're legally required to write such a book and then the witch's guide to the greek gods with astraea taylor will be out at the end of next year probably we're almost done writing that Oh, I'm so excited for that. I love Astraea and I just, I'm a very big fan of the Greek gods. I work with them a lot. And so I like, there's so much, you know, heathenry and Celtic paganism that's really prominent out there. And I'm excited for some, you know, Hellenistic stuff to come out there too. It's weird. I think people sort of pick and choose, you know, the Greek gods sometimes. Like I'm just going to work with this one and then ignore the rest of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and you see that. I mean, Hecate is, is she's, a very she's big having thing. a moment. She's doing yeah. great, and I love her. But there are also a lot of people who really love Dionysus and Eris. Some who love Apollo. Uh, we're taking, uh, we're having people submit stuff for that book. So that's been kind of fun. And one of the things I love about the Greek gods, and I think this is often overlooked, is how far their worship spread. I yeah. mean, they were worshipped in more than just Greece. I mean, they they were in modern day Pakistan. Yeah. Parts of India, all the way to the British Isles. I mean, that's a huge swath of place. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. Thanks, Romans. (laughs) Yes. You know, they built roads and they spread the gods. So it wasn't all bad. They also like just absorbed them. I kind of love the Roman, you know, approach to, you know, other religions. I prefer that over the Catholic or Christian version that, you know, like, okay, well, you have another God. Obviously they're real. Maybe it's just another face of a god we know, or maybe we're just going to start worshiping that god too. It's certainly much more healthy than just absorbing all of those gods and saying that they're the devil. Yeah. And also you're on Twitter, you're Jason Minky on Twitter, right? Right. And Instagram, to, everything is, yeah, usually everything is at Pan Mankey. Ah, Pan okay. being my favorite god, my last name being Mankey. I will admit, I did think for a while your name was Pam. And then I realized I was re-re- I was misreading something. I've been called much worse, so completely fine. Yeah, but well, thank you so much for this awesome conversation. And everyone, go out and rewatch the Vavitch. And I have not seen Robert Eggers follow up to that, The Lighthouse. Have you seen that? That's our final question. I saw half of it. And my wife hated it, so that was. That it was looks. It doesn't look like my sort of thing, but I know a lot of people who. Who love it so and maybe, maybe mid- one day midsummer is kind of like the follow-up to the witch yeah they're so tied together you know we had danny i had a danny ryan on here talking about midsummer a few months ago in conjunction with beltane because even though it's technically called midsummer it's very much like a beltane sort of movie but yeah they're they're very much spiritual twins these two movies the best of horror in the last 10 years. Yeah. And, and, you know, next, I think our next episode or the episode after that is going to be um, the green Knight. So we'll <gasps> I be know, talking about another A24 release, vaguely pagan, well, 
pretty pagan. So I'm very excited about that. Depending on when it actually shows in a theater where I can see it, it will either be the next episode or, or four weeks from now. So yeah. thank you for giving me that transition. Uh, and thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Thank you for listening. As always, if you like the podcast, please give us a rating, leave us a review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps us um, find people and find listeners. And also tell your friends if you like us and tweet about us. You can follow us on Twitter at RealMagicPod. And you can follow me on Twitter at FangirlingJess. We're also on Patreon at RealMagicPod. And we will be back in two weeks, hopefully talking about The Green Knight. Again, that is if I can find a theater that's playing it in Oregon. <laughs> Until then, please remember to live deliciously and as safely as you can. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye, cruel world. Goodbye to life. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye to all that.